I'd invite you to bow with me once more, and let's pray as we prepare to hear the message. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, these children that you've blessed us with in our church congregation. We pray that even as they go to Children's Church, Lord, that uh, your spirit would go with them and be with the teachers. Bless them, Lord, as they minister. Thank you, Lord, for the ministry uh, that each one of us can be given to serve you in different capacities. Lord, whether in this church body directly, um, on a committee, whether teaching or in some other role, or whether it's in the community through, through other ministries, Lord, through visiting the elderly or the sick, through having uh, a hospitable home where, where when you invite those in and visit with them and talk with them about you, um, whatever the ministry, Lord, whether um, in small ways or in great ways, we thank you that you've called us to this important work, and we pray that we would continue to be faithful in whatever you've called us to do. And now, Lord, as we come to your word and as we prepare to hear from it and receive it, I pray that you would give me the boldness, give me the strength to speak well. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts to receive and that we would heed what you have for us today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a true story told that boarding the SS Dorchester on a dreary winter day in 1943 were 903 troops and four chaplains, including Moody alumnus Lieutenant George Fox. World War II was in full swing, and the ship was headed across the icy North Atlantic, where German U-boats lurked. Suddenly, at 12 a.m., the morning of February 3rd, a German torpedo fired from submarine U-223 ripped into the side of the ship. She's going down, the men cried out. Hundreds of men packed the decks of the rapidly sinking ship and scrambled for the lifeboats. However, several of the lifeboats had been damaged in the attack, and the four chaplains began to organize the frightened soldiers. A young, trembling GI crept up to one of the chaplains in the midst of the confusion. I've lost my life jacket, he said. Immediately, taking off his own jacket, the chaplain replied, Take this, and handed it to the soldier. Before the ship sank, each of those four chaplains had given his own life jacket to another man. One of the survivors, John Ladd, later said, It was the finest thing I have seen or hoped to see this side of heaven. As the ship sank, survivors in nearby rafts could see the remaining men on the deck of the ship, huddled around the four chaplains who had all linked their arms with each other and lifted their voices in prayer to the Almighty, as the Dorchester went down below the icy waves of the Atlantic. The four chaplains were awarded posthumously the Distinguished Service Cross for extreme gallantry and selfless courage in order to save lives. Lieutenant Fox's testimony is crystal clear. Jesus had died for his sins in order to save his soul, and by willingly going to the cross for him in his place, it was as though Jesus had given his life jacket to him willing to die so that he might be saved and live eternally. And so Lieutenant Fox, compelled by such a powerful love, how could he do anything less than to give his life in return? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes this, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 
This is the final note that John seeks to strike in his conclusion to his gospel as well. That Jesus is a king worth living for and a savior worth dying for. Because Jesus Christ died for all, how could those who profess his name continue to live for themselves any longer? How could we go on as though nothing had changed after encountering the living Christ? It is impossible. Just as we saw in the video, how could Saul, having encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, how could he go back to how he was before? Can we conceive of any way of being struck down by light, being confronted by Christ, and not being transformed, not having everything change? I believe it's impossible. And as 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 declares, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now two months ago we opened this series in John's Gospel with his bold declaration, his bold claim of Jesus. In the beginning was the word, And the word was with God, and the word was God. Now let me reiterate that this claim that Jesus Christ is God remains the single most audacious and important claim in all of history. As the great thinker C.S. Lewis wrote, I'll quote again, he said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. To put that into perspective, let's suppose that you had a complete cardiac failure. Your heart's just done. It's finished. The ticker's wore out. The only hope for survival is that you receive a heart transplant within 24 hours. There's only one doctor in the entire nation who is qualified and capable of performing that delicate procedure required to save your life. So now imagine that you're in that situation. You're lying on the operating table. And just before they put you under, you look up into the face of that one and only doctor in the entire nation who's capable and qualified of saving you, your life literally in his hands. And looking up at him, would you say that he is of moderate importance to you? What would you say? Would you say that his ability or his skill is only kind of sort of a big deal? No, you wouldn't say that at all. It is of utmost importance that this doctor is there, that he is capable and qualified to do that which can save your life. So it is with Jesus Christ. The Bible reveals him to us as the one and only great physician in the entire world, in the entire universe, the one and only qualified and capable Savior of our souls, the only one. And for 21 chapters, John has laid out the evidence that backs his audacious claim of Jesus being that one and only Savior, God in the flesh. He lays them out in such a way that either we have to take them and be radically transformed or reject them altogether because there's no middle ground. Here are some of the things that John laid out as evidence to back his claim. Jesus knows the thoughts and motives of, motives of man. We saw that as he, 
as he knew Nathaniel, as he saw him standing under the fig tree. He knew where he was and he knew his thoughts. And we see that repeated throughout the gospel. Knowing the thoughts and motives of man. Jesus then demonstrated his complete authority over the physical elements of creation by walking on water, healing the blind, healing cripples of every uh, type and stripe, and healing every other sickness and disease. And in one instance, he even did that from many miles away. He then exercised spiritual authority by casting out demons, teaching God's kingdom with authority, and also, this really got to the Pharisees, he forgave sins. He also exercised divine authority over death itself by raising Lazarus from the dead even after he'd been in the tomb four days. Then he defeated not only death but sin and Satan by taking God's wrath that mankind's sin deserves on himself by dying in the cross in our place. Then he secured it all by bodily rising from the dead himself and afterwards proving that he was truly alive by, re- by revealing himself on multiple occasions to the disciples and many others as well. Who else but God in the flesh could do all of these things? This is John's argument. Who else but the one and only Savior of the world would be capable of such things? And so in John chapter 21, verses 24 and 25, having made his case, John rests it with this personal declaration. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other, many other things as well. If every one of them are written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would have room for the books that would be written. Here John is saying, I wrote these things down. I saw them with my own eyes. My testimony is true. Now what will you do with it? And so as we conclude this series, let me ask you once more. If you are persuaded that John is telling the truth, if you are persuaded that his testimony is reliable, if you believe Jesus' claim within John's testimony, the words recorded where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Meaning that he alone is the one and only person in the entire universe capable and qualified to save our souls from hell and damnation, the only one able to grant us eternal life with him forever in heaven. Then I ask you this question. If we believe this, how important is Jesus to you? How important? Now I'm quite confident... I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm quite confident that no professing Christian here today would have the boldness to say, yeah, Jesus is moderately important to me. Anyone? No, I didn't think so. Not one of us would say that. We would all say he is of utmost importance to us. He saved my soul. And I hope that that would be your response today. But let me ask. Do our actions agree with our lips? Does the testimony of our lives, Monday to Saturday, align with the songs we sing and the teaching we agree with on Sunday morning? My friends, John's gospel makes it plain. Jesus cannot be only of some importance. He cannot only be a halfway Savior, a halfway Lord. It's all or nothing. 
There's no middle ground. Indeed, he is a king worth living for and a savior worthy of our lives and even our death. And so I want you to return with me to John chapter 21 and verse 18. If you turn there with me in your Bibles. And we're going to pick right up where we left off last week. Where we ended off with Peter and Jesus on the seashore of of the Sea of Galilee. He has just been restored with those threefold questions. And we'll call Peter's three denials of Jesus with the servant girl around the fire. And then again, around another fire, Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And he responds in the affirmative. And each time the command, feed my sheep. And so now with that important bit of business taken care of in verse 18, Jesus continues on and says to Peter, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Now, if we just paused right there for a second, we just paused right there and just read that one verse out of context, we would say, it sounds kind of like Bayside, right? That's what we'd say. Yeah. It sounds like an old folks' home. We, we get old, and we didn't want to go there. You know, we'd rather be independent in our homes. And, yeah, I used to dress myself, but now I can't even do that anymore. But, but is that what Jesus is getting at here? No. John gives us some clarity. He goes a step further, and he says, This is to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, Follow me. So here, once again, Jesus issues to Peter the call, follow me. A command which he gives 23 times throughout the Gospels. And this call, follow me, is a call to leave what you are doing, forsake everything else, your occupation, even your family, leave it all behind, and literally, follow me. But now, with just having restored Peter into his service, here, my thought would be that Jesus would be gentle, reassuring, and affirmative with Peter. At the very least, don't tell Peter how he's going to die in the very next breath. And yet that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus is essentially saying to Peter, here's the deal. If you follow me, you you take up that mantle once more, you're going to be the shepherd of of my flock, feed my sheep. If you do that, You are going to be taken by force, and you will have your arms stretched out against your will to die the excruciatingly painful death of crucifixion. So now, follow me. This is not exactly the recruitment tactic that I would have used, nor is it the recruitment tactic that we would expect. But John gives us this incredible statement. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Even in death, our lives are to glorify God. As his king and savior, Jesus demanded, and yes, Jesus deserved, complete allegiance of Peter's life. No longer would it be used to glorify old Peter but solely to glorify God in his life and more so in his death. John is making plain here that part-time following of Jesus with casual commitment was just not going to cut it. Peter's life no longer belonged to him, but to Christ, who had bought and paid for it with his own blood. 
and therefore to be used by Christ to glorify God however he saw fit. See, our lives no longer belong to us. They belong to Christ. So therefore, even our death and the day of our death and the manner of our death is not our own. It belongs to Christ. And in fact, I've become increasingly aware of this over my life. That there's a very real likelihood that I might glorify God more in my death than in my life. In fact, I've seen it happen where God has used the death of someone to bring such glory to him in a manner that their life did not. And it's incredible how God can do this. And we would say, well, Lord, what right do you have to use my death in such a manner to bring glory to you? What right? The right of the cross. The blood of Jesus. He has every right that when we come to him and heed the call, follow me. Yes, even our death and the manner and the timing of it belong to him. And he says, now that you know, follow me. Glorify me in your life, and yes, glorify me in your death. As G.K. Chesterton once wrote, man's chief aim is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is the aim of our lives, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the two are linked. Because if we're saying we've got to glorify him in our death, is that the end? No. Because then thereafter, we will enjoy him forever. And once we realize that whether by our life or by our death, it's all about God's glory, that is when life really begins to make sense. And we can graciously accept whatever path God lays out for us, whether it's easy or whether it's hard, because it's all to glorify God. And so how did Peter respond to this news? All right, Peter, you're back in the saddle. You're following me, feeding my sheep. You're going to die a really horrible death. Follow me. How does Peter respond? Verse 20. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? (laughs) I love this response. Don't you just love this response from Peter? It's so classic Peter. It's as though Peter is saying, okay, Lord, yeah, I can do that. I can die for you. I can be crucified for you. But am I the only one who has to suffer like this? What about old Johnny boy back there? How's he going to die? And here Peter demonstrates for us a deeply ingrained human tendency. And that tendency is to compare ourselves to others. We want to know that if we are called to suffer, why does it seem that others get off so easy? Lord, you've called me to a hard road here. Why is his road so, so light? I'm suffering here. I've got to die by crucifixion. How's Johnny going to die? Is it going to be a lot easier? Is he going to be an old man and die peacefully in his bed, surrounded by his loved ones? He wants to know. He wants to compare. And we too want to know. And we too want to ask questions like, God, are you dealing fairly with me? Is what you're asking me to sacrifice more or less than what you're asking of others? But now listen to Jesus' reply to Peter's very human question. Verse 22, Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. 
I love this response. Because in not so many words, Jesus is essentially saying, Peter, mind your own business. My plan for John makes no difference to my plan for you. And he even throws out this argument, if I want him to remain alive until I return, and I want you to die a a terrible death, what difference does that make? And that little curveball even got the disciples buzzing. John's going to stay alive forever. But John said, no, 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 no. It was just a comparison. I'm not going to live forever. But nonetheless, Jesus is making it very plain. Peter, don't compare. All that matters is this. You must follow me. That's the only thing. And just as Jesus' call on Peter had nothing to do with Jesus' call on John, let me say this as plain as I can. Jesus' calling on your life has nothing to do with his call on anyone else. His call is personal for you and you alone. So let me ask you, has God called you to a ministry of visiting the sick? Don't worry about who else is or isn't visiting the sick. You must follow Jesus' call. If God has called you to a ministry of teaching the word, whether to young or old or somewhere in between, don't compare yourself to me or anyone else. Don't compare yourself to Billy Graham and wonder why your platform is so small by comparison. Follow Jesus' call for you. If God has called you to a ministry of giving generously and sacrificially over and above your means, don't compare to how much or little others are giving. You must follow Jesus' call. If you are called to suffer persecution or suffer insults for the sake of Jesus' name, even if all of the most important people in your life ridicule and mock you for it, don't compare yourselves to those who have no trials. For Jesus says, what is that to you? You must follow me. And of course, it goes without saying, some calls will require more sacrifice than others. But the question is not, how much must I sacrifice for you, O Lord? But instead, Lord, with how much am I privileged to serve you that I might glorify your name? One of the most famous missionaries in all of Christian history in the church is David Livingston. You'll recognize the name. (laughs) There's a famous story about him, many famous stories. And David Livingston is known most famously for opening the heart of the dark continent of Africa, bringing in the hope of the gospel. And near the end of his life, this is what he said. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply acknowledging a great debt we owe to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, the peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny? It is emphatically no sacrifice at all. Rather, I count it a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger, foregoing the common conveniences of this life, these may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. 
All these are nothing compared with the glory which shall later be revealed in and through us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk. When we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. What a testimony. And what is Jesus asking you to sacrifice in order to follow him today? What is he asking you? Protection? Pride? Possessions? Position? Pleasures? Petty pursuits? Whatever it is, I challenge you today to replace all of those words with one word. Privilege. Privilege. It is a privilege to follow Jesus and to glorify the one who counted it all as loss so that we could be saved by leaving heaven's glory, coming to the cross, and purchasing us with his blood. It is a privilege to give our lives in return to such a Savior. And today I tell you with all honesty, I count it the greatest privilege of my life that Jesus has entrusted me with the ministry of this, of sharing his word with you. For Jesus is worthy of my life, and he is deserving even of my death. For my life is no longer my own. It belongs to him who purchased it with his own blood. And this is not my testimony alone. It is the testimony of all followers of Jesus Christ, from Peter and John until this very day. A man named Eric Fallman speaks of a testimony an experience he had in his life of meeting a Chinese couple in Hong Kong while traveling to China. And he writes, A friend took me down a narrow alley to a second-floor flat to meet a man recently released from prison in China. I knew I would be pressed to carry Bibles and literature on my trip, but I was hesitant and tried to mask my fear with rationalization about legalities and other concerns. A Chinese man in his 60s opened the door. His smile was radiant, but his back was bent almost double. He led us to a sparsely furnished room. A Chinese woman of about the same age came in to serve tea. And as she lingered, I couldn't help but notice how they touched and lovingly looked at one another. And my staring apparently didn't go unnoticed, for soon they both began giggling. And what is it, I asked my friend. Oh, nothing, he said with a smile. They just wanted you to know it was okay. They're newlyweds, you see. And I learned that they had been engaged way back in 1949, when he was a student in Nanking Seminary. On the day of their wedding rehearsal, Chinese communists seized the seminary. They took the students to a hard-labor prison camp. And for the next 30 years, the bride-to-be was allowed only one visit to her betrothed per year. One visit. Only a few minutes. And each time following their brief minutes together, the man would be called to the warden's office. And he would say to him, You may go home with your bride, if you will renounce Christ. And year after year, this man replied with one word, and one word alone, No. I was stunned by his testimony. How had he been able to stand the strain of it for so long, year after year, being denied his family, his marriage, and even his health. 
And when I asked him, he seemed utterly astonished at my question. And he replied with a question of his own. With all that Jesus has done for me, how could I betray him? And the next day, without even being asked, I requested that they fill my suitcase to the brim with Bibles and training literature to bring to the Chinese Christians in the underground churches. Also determined not to lie about the materials at the border, yet I lost not one minute of sleep worrying about the consequences. And just as God had planned, my suitcases were never inspected. My friends, with all that Jesus has done for us, why would we hold anything back from him? For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Truly, this Savior is a king worth living for and a Savior worth dying for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your call is not an easy one, but it is clear. Just as you laid it all on the line for Peter, and then said to him in the imperative, you must follow me. Lord, I pray that it would be just as crystal clear to each one of us here today. That your call is not wishy-washy, it's not halfway. If we claim your word is true, if we believe it, Lord, there is no other alternative because we are persuaded that you died for me. And because you died for me, I will live with you. And therefore, our lives no longer belong to ourselves. They belong to you, to use however you see fit, even in our death, that they would glorify you. And so, Father, I pray that as you have made this call clear to each one of us, I pray that our response would be as clear as the response of that Chinese Christian all those years in a prison labor camp, being presented with with freedom and, and a life with a family if he would just renounce you. But just as his answer was so crystal clear, a no. That, Lord, we too would be crystal clear in our response to the pleasures of this world, all the things that Satan is holding out as alternatives, and we would just look at them and say, no. I count it all as rubbish for the sake of Jesus Christ, my Savior. And that, Lord Jesus, when you look at us and say, would you follow me? Our response would be just as clear, yes. I will follow you wherever, however, and to whatever end so that my life may glorify you and I will be with you forever. Amen.